All right. Tonight um, is going to is really just a review. Uh, I printed out all of the different packets we've ever talked about here, so I could have them just in case some of you want to talk about a certain subject that I don't remember exactly what passages were used, so I could easily look it up. So I, it's good, good. So I, as you can see, wrote down just a summary of everything we've talked about this semester. So it's just a review tonight. I don't want to necessarily bring up any new material. Uh, just talk about the things we have talked about. Uh, and so I could just go through this. Or if there is something that you guys want to talk about that we have already talked about, we could do that as well. Um, so it could really just... Um, this, tonight could look however you guys want it to look. Um, and we could talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. But if you guys don't have a preference, then I'll just go through this. All right. Let me open this up in prayer, and then we'll see where tonight takes us. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that we are able to come together and study uh, you. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to do theology. Lord, to uh, interact with your revelation, to interact with your word, and um, try our best with the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord, uh, to understand it, to um, unpack all the things you have to teach us, Lord, so that we can know you well, Lord, and so that we can grow in our affections for who you are, Lord, and so that we can worship you well as a result. Lord, um, just keep our eyes on you, Lord. Reveal more of yourself to us, Lord. We desire to know you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. I actually just remembered I um, drew on a whiteboard over there um, some of the things I was thinking as I was putting this review together. So I'm going to grab it really quick. Sorry for the camera back there. <laughs> so as I know, you won't be able to read all that writing because it's kind of small. But maybe afterwards, if you want, you can take a picture of it. If it's not helpful for you, um, don't worry about it. I'll explain it as we go through tonight. All right. So, there's that. Um, as you can see, follow your note sheet. Uh, the first two weeks, we um, talked really just about the introduction. We talked about what is theology, who is it for, right? Um, I believe it was Pastor Jason who introduced this series talking about the difference between systematic theology, historical theology, biblical theology, applied theology. So we talked about some of the differences with that, remember? And we had said that this semester we're doing systematic theology. And if you remember, systematic theology is looking at God's Word as a whole on a specific topic and putting it all together. Um, so... We're taking God's word as a whole, all of God's revelation, asking the question, who is God? And now trying to piece the, the puzzle together. So that's what we have done, uh, systematic theology this semester, specifically on God, right? Who is it for? Uh, it's for us, right? It's for God's people. It's for the church. Uh, some may say it's for the academy, right? It's just for colleges, maybe for different universities or theologians at universities just to discuss intellectual things of God. Um, it's not for them specifically. You can do theology in universities, and it's done there, but it's primarily meant for the church, 
right, for us to discuss things of God. Uh, so then we talked about how to study theology, um, how to study theology with a heart of humility and worship. Uh, that was the second week, right? We talked about the right posture. What posture should we have as we do theology? And we said it was a, we need to have a posture of humility and worship. If you remember some of the things we talked about that week, we said that there's a false dichotomy between theology and life, right? And the reason why I think there's a false dichotomy between when we think of theology and practical Christian living, that's what I mean when I say life, um, the reason there is a false dichotomy is because many times we've said that theology belongs in, in an academic institution. So therefore, it's just abstract. It's more philosophical. Uh, it's not for the church. But if we rightly put it where it should be put, it's primarily, pri- primarily meant for the church, then we could start unpacking how it's actually very practical. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. And then I want to remind you all um, a CS of a C.S. Lewis quote. I didn't write it down on here, but I'm going to read it for you. Uh, we're still under how to study theology, right? Um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis in Mere Christianity on page 124. Um, he had a brilliant quote uh, of how our posture should be as we study theology, right? We're still in the introduction. And I want to remind you all what C.S. Lewis said. He said, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immensely superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. Right? So we need a heart of humility and worship as we do theology. I think most people probably have an, has an idea that those who like to talk about theology aren't that way. Right, So we need to make sure we have humility. And then the Charles Hodge quote there you could see is talking about the same sort of thing, how holiness is essential to correct knowledge of divine things and, a, and the, the great security from error. Right, um, Heart of humility, one that is being transformed by God. Uh, these are the things that we need to do theology well. So that's what we talked about the second week. Is there anything in the first two weeks you guys want to discuss? You know what you just said, the false dichotomy between theology and practical Christian living? Yes. Um, but is that more like applied theology? Applied theology. Yeah, in a sense. Applied theology, the discipline of, a th- of applied theology tries to bridge that gap. Yeah. So that's good. Applied theology is sometimes called pastoral theology, right? Um, so it's more on, it's more, it's asking more practical questions. Uh, it needs to be built on, though, the biblical theology, the systematic theology, having all that as your backdrop. Anyone else, for the first two weeks, Hopefully not, because we need to get going on this. And we haven't really gotten into the meat yet. Uh, so doctrine of revelation. Uh, remember, we're not talking about the last book of the Bible. We're talking about how God shows himself to, him, how God shows himself to us. Um, and we spent two weeks here. We talked about natural revelation, or also known as general revelation. All right, you could use those terms interchangeably, natural, general. Um, and that corresponds with natural theology then, right? So God reveals himself in the natural sense, the general sense. Remember, that is in creation, um, not through scripture. Uh, 
we see God's beauty in creation, right? And the natural theology is seeing those things and contemplating God. You're doing theology, you're contemplating God, but just from God's general revelation. That's what natural theology is. And you can see there's a, a good definition there of natural theology. That was a definition that Jason um, brought up when he taught this week. Uh, there's also something called philosophical theology um, that falls more in natural theology because philosophy, right, is generally just using reason. Man's knowledge is what you generally think of when you think of philosophy. And so you're doing philosophy in the natural theology realm. Uh, so this brings us um, kind of to this um, here, what I was thinking through as I was drawing this. Uh, so you could see the top part, I have natural theology. And then the bottom part, I have supernatural, or I also called true theology. So the first part is natural theology, this top part. Uh, and I made the normal divide people think of. We have God on one side and we have man on another side, right? There's a big chasm of sin. And so the main question that we're asking is how do we have a relationship with God? How do we uh, have communion with our Lord? And we have sin is what caused the, the void, right? The big gap. And so you can see uh, this first arrow here is God's general revelation, what we're talking about. And as we'll see as we progress in this review, as we get to the Trinity and how he works, remember we talked about God's revelation comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Because it's a Trinitarian revelation, right? It's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. The Spirit's one who applies, who, who shows God's revelation to us. And I have some references there. Right, And then this right here, the arrow I made simply is human reason. Um, the act of doing uh, natural revelation. It's contemplating this. And what this is, is creation, um, maybe natural laws, those sort of things. Everything God, every way God reveals himself, that's not in God's word. And it's just contemplating it. And that's natural theology. And then the main conclusion from this is worship cannot happen by natural theology alone. Right? The goal is worship. God reveals himself to us so that we can know him, contemplate him, contemplate him, right? That's doing theology. And then worship him as a result. Uh, worship doesn't happen from natural theology because we need God then to supernaturally work within us in order to create worship. And that's why we need the second part. <clears throat> so that's why this only stays on this side, never actually gets back to God. Um, and then we have uh, special revelation, uh, supernatural theology. As you can see, if you're following on your note sheet, this is what we talked about the following week after natural theology. And as you can see, uh, same thing, God, man on this side, this was the chasm. Uh, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, he reveals salvation to us, right? Christ is the great high priest. We talked about that as he was our mediator. Um, how he is the one currently interceding for us. Uh, and then at that point, there's no more chasm now. So I didn't keep the chasm. And there is then a current cycle. This whole cycle is doing theology, having a communion. Uh, a communal relationship with God, and it goes by having uh, re God reveals himself, then we worship him, he reveals himself, we worship him, he reveals himself, we worship him. It's an ongoing spiral of God's revelation, and our seeing at that uh, and responding to that. That's what J or Sam talked about last week, right? Revelation and response. Um, and I said, this revelation isn't new revelation, but it's revelation through Scripture, right? God doesn't give us new personal revelation, but we're learning more about God 
through his special revelation, which is scripture. Um, so the proper task, the proper posture that we should have in doing theology, this is going back to what we already talked about, is a heart of worship. Why? Because worship is all involved in our theology because it's a constant cycle of revelation and response or revelation and worship, revelation and worship, revelation and worship. That's how true theology should look. Right, right? And so then worship happens regularly with this one. Um, and that's the goal, right? It's contemplating things of God, which is what theology is. It's intended to lead to worship. That's, that's the goal. Right? Uh, that covered weeks three and four. Is there anything you guys want to talk about in weeks three and four? Yes. I mean, worship that is actually acceptable to God, that God actually takes as worshipful. Um, and I said through alone, like you can worship God as a believer through natural theology, um, but you can't do this alone. Uh, does that make sense? We need this in order to take place in order for worship to occur. Is this helpful or is this just seem... Crazy. I don't know. All right. Anything else for revelation? Um, this is an important part because it's like uh, how we can actually even begin to do theology. We can't say anything about God unless God reveals himself to us. I was just going to comment that the natural theology, it seems like if you look at history, Man always got it wrong. If you look at ancient religions, they do not show a God of love and mercy who loves mankind. It's a God, gods who want to punish and are arbitrary and they're fickle and they have to be sacrificed to. And it, I don't know that you can, because of the sin in the middle, Yeah. and like what you're saying is it's not, you can't do it alone. Yeah. I'm saying left to your own devices, man just gets it wrong. I agree, 100%. Yep. So this contemplation here, right, is human reason. So I would put it like um, maybe like uh, Plato, Aristotle. Like I think of philosophers, like them looking at the universe and trying to make sense of it. They weren't believers, right? Um, but they're looking at the universe, seeing what God created. God reveals himself in that. But they are still blind to the fact that this is the God of the Bible, right? And so because they're blind to that, they can't actually have a relationship with him and they can't worship him in any meaningful way. Um, but they can say potentially right things, but then also many times wrong things, right? So we need scripture, special revelation in order to be the backbone to that. Um, so, and I think you're right that Many times people see, would, would see God's uh, general revelation as non-believers, and that's how false religions would be developed and different gods would be developed, uh, trying to contemplate those things, but they wouldn't have God's special revelation in order to be able to do it properly. So that's why this right here never actually got back over here. <laughs> so... So then I said here, the act of doing theology devotionally, right? It's very practical in that way. This takes away the, the dichotomy, right? It's very worshipful, which is very practical for our lives. Um, and that's what theology is meant to be. Anything, anyone else for revelation? I know we're kind of going over this quickly still. We're only 15 minutes in. Doctrine of the Trinity is going to be uh, a big one. Um, so this was three weeks. We talked about this in weeks five through seven. Uh, so you can see I put on here divine simplicity and inseparable operations. Um, these are things that uh, had a lot of discussion 
Um, there's a lot of questions on these things. Uh, does anyone remember what these are? At least how they were maybe defined before. Uh, does anyone remember the distinction between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity or the functional trinity? All right, that's fine. Um, so let me start with ontological trinity and the economic trinity. So ontological, uh, what that is referring to, ontologically, that's referring to who God is in and of himself, right? So who is God? Um, he's the Trinity, right? But when we try to describe who he is in and of himself, we're describing the ontological Trinity. Uh, when we talk about the economic Trinity, we're talking about, well, what does God do? Those are his external works outside of himself, Ontologically, we're talking about who he is inside himself. Economically, we're talking about who he is outside of himself. You guys understand the distinction? Um, ontologically, who is God in and of himself internally? Economically is externally. His works in creation, in salvation, all of those things. That's the economic trinity. All right, so divine simplicity uh, is a doctrine that has been held since uh, the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325, right, which was one of the earliest ecumenical church councils to help us understand some of these things. Uh, and divine simplicity holds on to the belief that God is simple in the sense that he is not made up of parts. right? There isn't like, this is, there's not like a formula of different things that make up God. God is who God is. He is simply God. That's what divine simplicity is referring to. Right? So someone might be tempted to see that God is love, right? God is holy, God is just. Um, just start thinking of these different divine attributes. You add those all up, that's what equals God. Divine simplicity says, no, that's not true. Uh, what does 1 John say? Love isn't just part of God. God is love, right? It's all of who God is. God isn't just holy, but he is holy. Um, it's part of his very essence. Uh, remember the Trinity, we say he is three in persons and one in essence. We're talking about his essence, his essence is one and simple. It's not made up of parts. Um, his essence is his holiness. His essence is his loveliness. His essence is all of these things. Um, the divine attributes, the highest expression of these divine attributes is God. Right? God's the definition of love. Because the highest expression of love is God. He is divinely simple. That's what divine simplicity refers to. If this is a little difficult, that's fine. It, um, it, it's not intended to be easy the first time. Uh, so, if God is divinely simple and not made up of different parts, then that's the ontological trinity, who God is in and of himself. Then, in the economic trinity, the inseparable operations comes out. How does God work externally? Remember, in creation, salvation, those sort of things. Uh, his operations, his work is inseparable. Um, to, we are referring to the works of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one work of God because he is divinely simple. He is one God. It's not three different gods working, choosing to cooperate with each other. It's one God we worship. <coughs> and he has one will, one work in this world uh, to save us. Um, each person of the Godhead um, brings that out in their own functions, uh, in their own, they appropriate the 
um, work differently. So let's think about the work of God showing his love to humanity, right? That's an easy one. Um, we think of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, this is the work that he's showing, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So this work comes from the Father, right? It's initiated from the Father, comes through the Son. He gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the role of the Holy Spirit, right? The role of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in a little bit, is the one who applies that to the people, right? We see the love of God because the Holy Spirit points us to that. Um, it's all the one work of God to show us his love, but the, it's from the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. Um, by me saying that, I'm referring to the work of God and how it's inseparable because there is one God. It's not three distinct persons in the sense that the way we think of three distinct persons um, with separate wills um, that are not unified Right? We're talking about one actual God with one essence and one substance. That's who our God is. Our God is one. All right. I said a lot there. Any comments or questions? Actually, before I ask that, I'm going to read the Scott Swain quote here. This might help. Right? He talks about divine simplicity and inseparable operations. You can see it right in your note sheet. As God's, as God's being being, right, his essence is simple and indivisible, so his works are undivided and inseparable. So when he says God's being, he's talking about the ontological trinity, who God is in and of himself, right? He is simple and indivisible. So his works, now he's talking about the economic trinity, his ontologicalness, I just made up that word, uh, affects how he shows himself externally, affects his works, his economic works. So because God is simple and indivisible, that then shows that his works are undivided and inseparable. As three distinct persons eternally exists within God's simple indivisible being, so there are or so there is a threefold or operation within God's undivided inseparable works. <laughs> yeah. See, Doctrine of the Trinity is not simple. Um, all right, questions, comments on this? I know this is difficult. So divine simplicity is God's 100%-ness, like 100% love, 100% holy, 100%, yes. 100%, yep. 100%, 100%. Sure, if you want to put it that way, yeah. And so we would say there is one work of creation, right? There's not three distinct works of creation. We know that God created the heavens and the earth, right? But then we also see in the Gospel of John that it was Christ. Um, and it says that it was through Christ. So um, we see God's, Christ's work in that. And when Jason taught, he was showing how the Spirit is also involved in that. But it's one work of creation, um, so, yeah, that's what we're talking about. And for us to understand it, the order of the people in the Trinity, right? We say the Father is the first person of the Godhead for a reason. We say the Son is the second person of the Trinity for a reason. And the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity for a reason. They go in that order, right? Because that's how they express themselves. That's how they show themselves. Because they always show us who he is from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. It's always in that order. Um, and if that's who we see who God, how God works economically, then we could have an idea that that's kind of how he is ontologically, right? Who God is in and of himself. He expresses himself um, to us economically uh, so that we can know who he is ontologically. If you didn't understand, Follow that, that's fine. Um, 
So when you see the word God, say Old Testament, what is it refer? What aspect is it referring to? And I, and I say, for God so loved the world that He gave. Am I equating God to God the Father there, in that person, or yeah. is it God His essence? Or I mean, because some of it doesn't, well, kind of doesn't follow logically. I mean, how do you know? Like in the Old Testament, it says God. Talk about his essence, or though, I mean, I always kind of read it as God the Father. Yeah, I think that's I fine reading it as God the Father. And I think based on context, it's different. Uh, if you remember, uh, I think it was the second week we were talking about, we were talking about, I can't speak, we, we were talking on the Trinity, uh, the ontological Trinity, the essence and attributes of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You can see that's what's next here. I think, if I remember correctly, I was showing that. Whenever Yahweh was mentioned by name, you, I think it's faithful to read into that as the triune God. Um, that it's referring to the triune God as Yahweh, because that's his name properly. And who is he? He's the Trinity. Uh, but I do think, though, sometimes when God is mentioned, just um, God or Elohim, um, with the context, it could just be referring to the Father. But with that, all things stem or flow out from the Father that, so that naturally then the Son and the Spirit will be followed along with that. Um, but they might not be in the media context. So I know it's not a specific or a straight perfect answer, but... And all of that, who is God, his essence, his essence is referring to his unity, right? His oneness. So I wouldn't get too mixed up on, well, what is this his essence? Is this his, his works? I think we could easily divide that and see what Scripture is talking about between those two things, right? Um, I'm, not referring to two, I'm not referring to two, two, two different trinities, Right, it's one God, one Trinity, um, but there's a distinction in the ontological and the economic, just for us to be able to discuss these things. Um, I see confused looks. Any, anything else on this before we move on? So you look. We have ontological trinity on your note sheet. We have economic trinity, then the works of God in creation and redemption. Uh, if you remember, when we talked about the ontological trinity, the essence and attributes of God, we talked about only four specific attributes. We talked about how God is supreme. right? We talked about how God is eternal. And we talked about how God is holy and immutable. Immutable is referring to his unchangingness. God doesn't change. He is always the same, right? And to be able to declare those things, think about this, guys. This is, you have to think hard about it. To be able to say that God is supreme with understanding divine simplicity correctly, right? We're saying that, we're not just saying that supremeness um, describes who God is. But no, we're saying that he actually is supreme. He is the, the highest culmination of what supreme means, right? Um, and we're so, talking about, like, like I said, with his holiness. That's not just an attribute that just describes him. Um, he is holiness. He is what that is. Um, this is what God means when he says, I am that I am, right? Uh, this is what Yahweh is, um, he is the highest expression of all of these different types of divine attributes. So this is drastically different from us as humans, right? So if you think about attributes for, for me, um, you might say I'm kind maybe, hopefully. <laughs> but that's not tied to my very essence, right? I may not be kind sometimes, um, I could be mean. It's not the very definition of who Jacob is. You can't say Jacob is the definition of kindness. 
but you can say that about God. That's the difference between us and God as divinely simple. And uh, economic trinity, the works of God in creation and redemption, and you can see the order there, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. All right, think about this. Again, you have to think hard. With divine simplicity in mind and inseparable operations, what could we say about God? The Father, so let's talk about the Father's love, God's love, and how it comes from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The Father's love is Christ. Christ doesn't just show us the Father's love. The Father's love is Christ. This is why when the Father shows his love to us, he sends us his Son. The Father's love is Christ and applied by the Spirit. Right? The Father's power is Christ applied by the Spirit. The Father's wisdom is Christ right? applied by the Spirit. And we'll see passages for that in a little bit. So you could um, think of it in that sense, right? Uh, the Son is the power of God, of the Father. The Son is the love of the Father. Um, there is no distinct love of the Father that's not at all associated with the Son. All right, we can move on if you guys want. Is there any comments on this? I know I've asked that a lot, but there's a lot here. You guys just missed the fun part. At least fun for me. I don't know if it was fun for them. <laughs> On the Trinity. All right. Well, well, we'll come back to some of those things in a little bit. Uh, week eight, we talked about the doctrine of the God the Father. Uh, Pastor Sam talked about this, and his main question was that we're looking at, what does it mean to have a heavenly father? Um, and really, he ended with this Michael Reeves quote on his note sheet, and really, uh, the answer is that, is that everything flows from the father. Um, his love, right? Everything is initiated from from the Father. Let's read this Michael Reeves quote. He says, talking about the Father's love, uh, it says, That insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For it's before all things, um, for it, before all things, God was eternally a Father. Then this God is an inherently outgoing, life going God. Just as a fountain, to be a fountain, must pour forth water, so the Father, to be a Father, must give out life. That is who He is. That is His most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the Father has, merely one of His many moods. Rather, He is love. Remember, we just spent a lot of time talking about that. That's what divine simplicity is talking about. He's, it's not just a different attribute about Him. He is this thing. He could not, not love. If he did not love, he would not be the father. Um, so this is what we're talking about. And this is, you can see, from uh, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, so what does it mean to have a heavenly father? It means, uh, well, for us, that we're able to have a personal relationship with him. right? But ultimately, for him to be father means that everything flows from him. And literally, it would be everything. Um, because he is God and he is creator and he is um, the all in all, right? The God Almighty. So was there anything from this week you guys wanted to talk about from uh, week eight, specifically on the Father? This was only one week, so there wasn't a whole lot of material. <laughs> all right, Doctrine of Christ. There was a lot of material in this. This was three weeks, uh, weeks nine through eleven. Pastor Jason uh, taught through the first week the person of Christ, the God Man. He showed us uh, the importance for us to boldly proclaim that Christ 
is God, fully God, truly God, and truly man. Um, the students know that that term uh, is the hypostatic union, the union, union between uh, God and man. <coughs> um, then Pastor Ron talked about the past atoning work of God. Um, I want to spend a good amount of time here. This is why I wrote um, some large passages here. Um, The past atoning work of of Christ. Pastor Ron used 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 7, um, on his note sheet. So I'm pulling from his material here. I added a little bit more verses to it. And add it a little bit in chapter 1. But I want us to talk about it in light of the things we've talked about in the Trinity. <coughs> Does someone want to read these passages? Elizabeth, Gabriel, your water. All right, thank you. I think I got myself under control. (laughs) Um, So I want us to go through this slowly, um, thinking about everything we just talked about uh, with divine simplicity, with who God is as triune, uh, as he works in this world, and how we see that being presented in in these passages here. So starting with chapter with the chapter one section, right? Uh, it's talking about um, the preaching the crucifixion of Christ, um, talking about the atonement of what Christ has done for us on the cross, right? Uh, it says um, that we preach Christ crucified, right, which is a stumbling block for Jews and a folly to Gentiles, and it starts talking about who Christ is in here. Um, but for those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles too, those who will actually have the Holy Spirit working in them to see the truthfulness of God's word and come to know God as his children, right? To them, um, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God, right here we see two identifiers of who Christ is, right? Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. I think in this context, um, Tom, that you, I think this is referring to God the Father here, specifically God, um, because there's a distinction between Christ and God. Uh, he is the power of the Father. Right? He is the wisdom of the Father, of, of God. And so we see things come from the Father through the Son. Right? Uh, God's wisdom, how he wor- works economically, right, his external works comes from the Father through the Son. The wisdom is, right, the Son. The love is the Son. But this wisdom, this love, is not just some abstract thing, but it's personal and he's a real person and it's Christ, right? For the falliness of God is wiser than men and the weakness 
of God is stronger than men. All right, now we're jumping to chapter two. Um, now it's talking about this hidden wisdom that was just identified as Christ. And it's referring to um, specifically uh, this hidden knowledge that was revealed when Christ came, right? Christ was going to die for all. It's referring to ultimately the salvation that's in Christ. So let's read through this again. But we impart a secret, a hidden wisdom of God. Right? Paul talks a lot about this in several of his epistles. Uh, this secret knowledge that was later revealed, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. So this hidden wisdom, this hidden knowledge, was already predetermined before the creation even happened, right? So this is saying that the atonement was always going to happen, right? Pastor Ron uh, brought that out, I think, pretty well when he talked through this, um, from this passage, actually. None of these rulers of this age understood this, right? Many of uh, people today don't understand this. Uh, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined that God has prepared for those who love him. Right? So it was so secret and so hidden that no eye could have seen it, no ear could have heard it, no heart could have imagined it, that God had prepared for those who loved him. Uh, These things God has revealed to us. Right now it's revealed to us how? Through the Spirit. So we see it comes from the Father, right, um, through the Son. The Son was the one who was actually crucified to demonstrate the love of God the Father. And this is now revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? So he's giving an example here just for us as humans the one who knows us the most ultimately is our spirit. But then for God, it's just even more so, right? For who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but we've actually received God's spirit, who is from God, that we might understand uh, the things freely given to us by God. What is given to us by God? What's the gospel? Christ, right? So it comes from God. God gives us Christ, and this is where we see by the Spirit, right? It's applied by the Spirit. We can't know these things unless the Spirit reveals it to us. So here within this, we see the idea, uh, the doctrine that of inseparable operations, right? It's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, working together to bring these things apart, or to bring these things together, and how they're incredibly inseparable, right? The Father doesn't have a power somehow that's separated from the Son. The Son is the Father's power, right? The Father doesn't have a wisdom that's somehow separated from the Son. The Son is the Father's wisdom, such as you could apply it with love and all these sort of things. And then that's what we talked about earlier with divine simplicity as well. All right, that's a lot there. Is there um, any things you guys want to discuss? Any other observations in these passages? Um, Any pushback that you want to give me maybe um, on these things? Sounds like the kids are having fun. Did you guys understand that for the most part, maybe? I'm not seeing any head nods one way or the other. (laughs) All right. All right. Following week, we talked about the current interceding work of Christ, right? So we talked, that's the third and final week um, on the doctrine of Christ. We spent a lot of time in Hebrews in that section. Um, 
talking about how Christ is our great high priest who is currently interceding for us. And we talked about what that looked like. Right? So now we, could, we can boldly come before God, the Father, as believers because of Christ's current interceding work for us. Right? We talked about he intercedes currently now for those who he died for. Right? The atoning work of Christ and his interceding work go hand in hand. Anyone want to talk about anything on that? Um, and we could see Stephen Charnock. I had this quote on uh, the note sheet when we talked about it. Uh, and this just, I think, is a nice summary of it. Uh, As he was a priest upon the cross to make an expiation for us, so he is our priest in the courts of heaven. So we see talking about the atoning work of Christ on the cross, now currently in heaven, to plead this atonement before the tribunal of justice and the throne of mercy against the curses of the law, the accusations of Satan, the indictments of sin, and to keep off the punishment for which guilt was had merited. All right, so... I want to, us to reorient ourselves as we're talking about this, right? We're doing the task of theology. We're trying to understand God. Um, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit to help us, right? So we're seeing God's revelation. We've looked in God's word, right? We're wrestling through it. We're doing the task of theology and there's the repeated process that happens. We have revelation, then we receive it, then we worship, right? We're able to worship by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Revelation, worship, revelation, worship, revelation, worship. It's going to be a continual uh, process as we contemplate the things of God. Um, we are growing in our affections, hopefully, for God. The purpose of us doing these things, right, is to see the grandeur of God, the greatness of God, um, and to be more in awe of that. So that's my desire and hope in doing theology, always. And that's what makes theology exciting. Um, Because we get to see more, more of God in that. So... Um, let me ask you guys something before we move on to the Trinity, or before we move on to the Holy Spirit. Uh, when you study the Bible for yourself, do you think that, do you consider it as doing theology? Like when you think of theology or the act of doing theology, what do you think of and do you ever consider yourself do, as doing it? Anyone? I think I would say it's like I don't think, okay, it's time to study theology. <laughs> yeah. But I do think, like, okay, it's time to find out who God is. Yeah, that's good. And I see a Lily shaking her head as well, yeah. yes. It's not like I, yeah, like I go into it like theology time, yeah. you know, yeah. but like that is the. Yes, yeah. And it's exciting. of studying the Bible means you're doing theology. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's exciting, right? And it's intended to grow our affections for the Lord, for, him, for us to see more of his revelation in God's word, right? And have that stir in our hearts and then to respond to God uh, in worship and those sort of things. Um, and so what I hope for you to see though, like even when we talk about deeper matters maybe than what you might be used to, uh, the same thing should be happening or is what's intended to happen. Um, uh, I've said it like this many times that uh, we never graduate from the gospel as believers, right? I hope most of you guys agree with that. Never graduate from the gospel as believers. The gospel is that is something for us to understand and 
give our life to Christ initially, but then um, as we grow in Christ, we we're have to zoom in to the finer details of the gospel picture itself uh, and study those things to get to know more, more of God and how he works. And those are the things that grow our affections and um, ultimately the true end is to worship him in that. So hopefully you're getting that some from here. All right, Doctrine of the Spirit. Um, Jason taught all on this. Um, so if you don't have any questions on this one, that means Jason did a really good job teaching it. That's how I understood the Trinity one from you guys. You just understood it all. So the divine person of the Holy Spirit... Uh, was the first week. Jason kind of also got into the works a bit that first week. Um, <clears throat> talked about how the Holy Spirit is God, right? That's what we've been talking about this whole time as we talked about the Trinity. Uh, he is eternal, right? That's a divine attribute. Uh, omnipresent, he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Those are some of the things that Jason brought up. Uh, these are divine attributes that belong to uh, all the persons of the Godhead, right? Because he's divinely simple, right? Um, all right. Then he got into the works and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Talked about how, uh, I think this was actually in the first week, talked about how it was a spirit um, who was working in creation. Uh, we kind of mentioned that a little bit already. Um, and uh, talked about, yeah, gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, fruit of the Spirit, uh, there, talked about tongues and sign gifts, that was fun, uh, and then you can see here, this is a list that Jason brought up in his note sheet, I gave it the title though, the Spirit brings God's work into fruition, um, I, I phrased it that way on purpose, because it's trying to show that these things the Spirit does, is not just isn't isn't just uh, a thing that the spirit does by himself, absent from the son and the father, right? The father initiates his work, the son brings it to completion, and then, or he he completes it on the cross, right? With the with salvation and everything, but ultimately, it's the spirit who brings all of this work to fruition, right? He's the one applying it to the believer in these many different ways, right? So the Spirit inspires the Word. The Father is the one who speaks it. The Son is the one who is it. Um, the Word became flesh, right? It's through the Word. And then here we see the Spirit inspires the Word. Um, the Spirit illumines the Word, um, we have that. The Spirit convicts sin, righteousness, and judgments. Right? Uh, the Spirit makes us new creation or creatures. Uh, the Spirit is active in adopting us in salvation. The Spirit dwells inside you. The Spirit assumed, assures you of salvation. Right? These are all things the Spirit is doing in bringing the work the Father has done through the Son to fruition. Um, does anyone want to talk about the Spirit more in depth? I didn't bring out examples that Jason brought up of the gifts of the Spirit. We could talk about that. Um, I didn't bring up examples of uh, the sign gifts or anything like that. But... You guys understood Jason perfectly, right? And that's why you have no questions. We don't have much time anyways. We have less than five minutes left. All right, let's bring it to the last week. Sam taught. Week 14, our response to God and his revelation. That's what this whole thing is, right? Whether we're talking about natural theology or whether we're talking about supernatural theology, true theology, God 
uh, reveals himself and we respond to him. Our response to God and his revelation. He reveals himself, we contemplate him. That's what theology is. And then we respond to him. That's the ultimate goal. That's what we all try to shoot for is then our proper response to him, which is worship. Uh, Sam said, God makes worship that is acceptable to him possible through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And you can see he got some of that from the quote he also had uh, by David Peterson. He said, the pattern of acceptable worship throughout scripture can be defined as an engagement with God on the terms he proposes and in a way he alone makes possible. So God is the one telling us how to worship him. He gives us guidelines. We can't just do whatever we want to do to worship him. Sometimes people think they can worship God any way they want, uh, but God does set the standards, and that's found in Scripture. What is the standards? It's the same way he reveals himself to us. It's ultimately we worship him by the Spirit through the Son to the Father. It's a reversal of the way he reveals himself to us. Um, John 4, chapter 4, verses 27 through 24 is a popular passage people go to to talk about worship, which is um, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. If you remember at the end, he's talking about worship, and she asks him where, should, where is the proper place for someone to worship. And Jesus responds, But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, Right? It's going ultimately all the way back to the Father in the spirits and truth. So you worship the Father in the spirits and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the place now is located in the spirits and, and truth. Right? And how do we get to that place? It's ultimately in the spirits. The spirit that God gives us um, through the Son who is the truth into the Father. Um, so it's a Trinitarian construct in his revelation uh, because he is Trinitarian. It's a Trinitarian construct in our worship because um, he is not just the object of our worship, but he's also the means for us to be able to worship. So I want to end tonight reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And this is just completing now the chapter that we read earlier. Uh, it says, the natural person, think about natural theology, when they try to contemplate things of God, the natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, right? Uh, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's, we need to be able to discern God spiritually in order to discern them correctly. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged, but is himself not to be, is to be judged by no one. For who has under, for who has understood the mind of God so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, right? This is why we're able to do theology well. This is why we're able to contemplate things of God when we read scripture devotionally for ourselves, right? God has given us the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit. So let me close us out in prayer. Right? We came all the way to ultimately our response from God's revelation is for worship. And that's why Sam ended last week with worship and talking all about that. Um, was there any questions before I end in prayer? I know there was a lot here because I was trying to summarize everything we've talked about so far this semester. Any questions? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have, again, to contemplate things of you, Lord, uh, to study your word, Lord, to think about who you are uh, from your revelation, Lord. And I ultimately pray, that, Lord, that 
this will cause um, true affections for you, Lord, and it will drive us to worship you, Lord. Um, we don't want to be like the natural man and not be able to understand uh, your word, these uh, spiritual matters, Lord, uh, because ultimately we want our aim to glorify you, our aim in life to glorify you, uh, and that's living a worshipful life, Lord. And I pray that as we look to you, Lord, that will instruct us properly in our worship. I pray these things in your name. Amen.